1: To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. Listener discretion is advised. In
3: 1966, James Meredith, the first person of color to integrate the University of Mississippi, decided to go on a 200-mile march from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi. He called it a walk against fear, and it was meant to encourage black men and women to register to vote. On the second day out on the road, Meredith was ambushed and wounded by a white man with a shotgun. Meredith was rushed back to a hospital in Memphis his wounds not serious. The following morning, Martin Luther King flew in to see him, and the Reverend James Lawson, a pastor and civil rights leader in Memphis, drove out to the airport to pick him up.
4: I was met on the concourse by a couple of black police officers who were dressed in suits and ties, white shirts and ties. They informed me There will be no violence in Memphis, and King is going to be safe in Memphis. Claude Armour, the commissioner of fire and police, he has appointed eight officers of the police force in Memphis to work with him and accompany him as a security unit. From 1966 on, Dr. King's office cooperated with that black security squad of eight men they're the ones who would not allow him to stay at any hotel with balconies they wanted him to be inside where they could keep the scenery clear
5: was that unit assigned to him on his final visit to memphis That all-black unit
4: no it was withdrawn that security union was reassigned.
6: I called the union hall. I said, it's a matter of life and death. I said, I think these people are planning to kill Dr. King. The authorities would
5: parade, oh, we found a gun that James O'Ray Ray bought in Birmingham that killed Dr. King. Except it wasn't the gun that killed Dr. King. James
4: Earl Ray was a pawn for the official story.
3: From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The plan was to
5: get King to the city because they wanted it handled in Memphis where
6: Daddy and them could handle it. And I've lived with it so long, my children, they, they scared for me. The Lord told me to not the worry. I've been wanting to
3: tell it all my life. I'm Bill Kleber, and this is the MLK Tapes. Reverend Lawson was a good friend of Martin Luther King, and he was one of the first to question the official story of the assassination. Lawson will tell us how he came to know Dr. King and about the things he learned that created doubt about the murder. Then we'll hear from people who were in Memphis that fateful day and how what they experienced spoke to the very things that troubled Reverend Lawson. At the time of King's murder, Lawson was the pastor of the Centenary Methodist Church in Memphis. Lawson, like King, was a third generation minister and he decided to fight for racial justice at an early age. When he was just 22, he was sent to federal prison for refusing induction into the army. Lawson was locked up for a year and then went to India as a missionary. It was while he was in India that Lawson learned of the Montgomery bus boycott. We spoke last summer.
4: The Montgomery bus boycott was on the top news all across India. The early part of December, 1955, I'm sitting at my desk in my apartment in Nagpur, India. The immediate headline that caught my eye in my life, Negroes in Montgomery, boycott. I knew as I finished uh, my term in 1956 that I would be going to return home and would be involved in that campaign. I didn't know where, or
3: what, or when, or who, but I knew it was going to happen. And it did happen. Lawson met King when he got back from India, where he had studied the life and methods of Mahatma Gandhi. King was impressed.
4: He urged me, and I can't remember all the words, but he said, uh, come now, don't wait. We don't have anyone like you in
3: the South, and we need your experience, we need your work and help. So Lawson went south, where he would lead the lunch counter sit-ins in Nashville and be arrested as a freedom rider in Jackson, Mississippi. He then became the pastor at the Centenary Methodist Church, and in the summer of 65, he joined a group of ministers that went to Vietnam to make a report, a report critical of the war that he personally sent to Martin Luther King.
5: Less than two years after you made that report, Dr. King then made his speech at Riverside Church, a speech that shocked the nation. Yes, April
4: 4th, 1967.
7: And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such.
3: King's opposition to the war might have sounded like a practical matter. Money spent on military adventures abroad could not be used to help people at home. But underneath, there was a powerful moral argument that went much
7: deeper. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society in sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Holland.
5: Did you concur in that speech? Did you agree with Dr. King? Oh, absolutely. But his speech was not very well received by the overall American media and some people in the civil rights movement as well. Is that not
3: true?
4: That's true. We knew in our conversations the extent to which they would say he had no business talking about it, (laughs) which of course is the idiocy of our conventional wisdom in the United States. We think that preachers ought not to talk about evil (laughs)
3: <laughs> In 1968, Memphis, racial tensions were high. There were few decent employment opportunities to open to black citizens. Only the most menial work, and that was always underpaid. The 1,300 sanitation workers were the textbook case. A day after filthy work, black workers were not allowed to shower and change clothes at the garage, though the white workers were. If it was raining, they were sent home without pay, while their white drivers were allowed to go back to the garage, play cards, and stay on the payroll. There were constant humiliations, and if you objected to any of it, you'd be fired. On April 1, 1968, two black workers, E. Cole and Robert Walker, hopped into the back of their garbage truck to get out of the rain. Its trash compactor supposedly malfunctioned, switching on, and they were crushed to death. And if the horror of that were not enough, the wives and families of the two men were barely compensated. It was the last straw, and the sanitation workers walked off the job. The city of Memphis declared the strike illegal and refused to discuss the workers' concerns. And about all the workers could do was march and attend rallies. This is Reverend Lawson describing what happened during one peaceful march that he was leading a march he had cleared with Police Chief Holloman.
8: We were walking on the right side of the street, going south, and these cars came from the side streets onto Main Street and rolled up all alongside of us so that there was a long line of police cars, perhaps the length of the walk. Then I noticed some of the cars coming over the yellow line and trying to intimidate some of us walking. So I turned around and went to a couple of the police cars and said, now look, we have Holloman's permission to walk. You guys have just to provoke an incident, so stay where you are. And Then it happened again. They moved over on the marchers, and this time the sanitation workers put their hands on the car, and like that, the police cars all up and down that line stopped officers poured out of the cars with cans of mace and proceeded to mace everybody they could mace. They had some targets. They dragged off two or three people. I don't remember how many. I had glasses on, so they're macing me in the face, but the march was broken up in that fashion.
3: But as the strike entered its second month, it moved into something more threatening even than police violence. There were now 1,300 families with no savings and no income and no way to put food on the table. The strikers badly needed outside help, national attention. So Reverend Lawson asked his friend Martin Luther King to come to Memphis and speak at a rally. And there was standing room
4: only in that meeting. So I suspect that we probably had as many as 10 to 12,000 people in that sanctuary and in that building. I picked up Dr. King at the airport, and we had to walk through mobs of people who were overjoyed that Martin King was in Memphis for this strike. So this was a very powerful moment for
3: him and for us. In the euphoria that followed his speech, King agreed to come back to Memphis and join in a protest march. When the day came, King's plane was delayed, and he was a little late in getting there. The march began and King and his people arrived and took their place near the front of the marchers. But things were not going well.
4: When I turned on the main street, I saw just
3: beyond our
4: first rank of marshals who were maybe 50 yards ahead of us. I saw in front of them police officers in riot gear stretched across that main street in ranks of three or four ranks. On the side of the street, people were trying to break the store windows. No police officer moved to stop them. So I said to myself, they are planning again to break up this march.
3: Knowing what was coming next, Lawson ran back and demanded that King and his party retire. They're coming to get you, Martin, he said, and we don't want that. King objected at first, but then agreed and his party retired to the Rivermont Hotel with the honest help of a nearby police car. Later, Lawson and other strike leaders examined photos that were taken that day. According to them, the window-smashing and looting had not been done by the marchers, but rather by some Beale Street lowlifes and others they didn't know. As we heard at the beginning of the episode, from the time of the Meredith shooting forward, King had an all-black security unit when he came to Memphis. But for some reason, on King's final visit to the city, that unit was not called on to protect him. Instead, a police detail of four officers under the command of Inspector Donald Smith met Dr. King at the airport and escorted him to the Lorraine Motel, where they remained on duty till five in the afternoon. But none of them were black, and none of them returned the next day, April 4th, the day that King was murdered. Late in the afternoon of April 4th, Lawson went to the motel to report to Dr. King about his day in court, fighting, successfully as it turned out, for the right to march. Lawson left King at around 5 p.m. He was home having dinner with his wife when he got the news that Dr. King had been shot. He then dashed around the city trying to keep things calm. But several days later, he got a strange package in the mail.
4: I received a brown envelope, and on the inside of it, the invisible tape. It was wrapped around a bullet. It had scribbled on the sheet of paper to which the bullet was attached. There is one of these for
3: you. Lawson didn't tell anyone other than his wife about the package. But a few days later, he got a call on some matter from Police Chief Holloman. And toward the end of the conversation, Holloman said, we understand that you received a package in the mail. Lawson, as was his way, remained polite. But as he hung up the phone, he wondered, how did he know that? And as time went on, Lawson was troubled by a few other things he discovered after the murder. This is what he had to say in 1999.
8: I learned that one or two firemen, and I've not tried to check up these details, but one or two firemen who were in the fire station across the street, catty-cornered from the motel, black firemen, were transferred from that station in ways that at least those firemen thought was unusual. They contacted me and Ralph Jackson and or one or two others about their removal. I learned that um, Ed Redick, who was on surveillance from the fire station, was moved an hour before. I learned that patrol cars that were in the region when he was there patrolling on Mulberry, Maine, and whatnot, suddenly disappeared with nowhere
3: to be found. And after James O. Ray had been captured, more odd things began to pop into Lawson's head. When he found out that Ray was being held in a cell where the lights were kept on 24 hours a day, it brought to his mind sleep deprivations used by the North Koreans to break American captives.
4: My only regret is that I did not then go and find a way to visit him in that cell at the county jail. As a pastor, I made a serious error in not getting acquainted with James Earl Ray in that cell.
3: And when James finally had his day in court and pleaded guilty, Lawson was again disturbed.
4: His plea astonished me. And it didn't astonish me from his point of view. It astonished me from the official legal court point of view. Just why would the local police and district attorney, in an assassination of a major USA figure,
3: not move to have an open trial? I've come to call this Lawson's question. It's a good one. If this case is the big slam dunk that the police and DA like to say it was, Why the big push for the plea? Why wouldn't the DA's office pursue a trial to prove without a doubt that James Earl Ray killed Martin Luther King? As you just heard, Reverend Lawson felt badly about not having visited Ray while he was held captive for eight months before his court date. But Lawson would make up for that. He visited Ray in jail after he was convicted. He came to know Ray in a way few other men did. Lawson even married Ray in jail and at the end sat with him as he awaited death. So what was his measure of the man?
5: Of course, the motive that was given to Ray was that he hated black people so much that he escaped from prison with the sole intention of murdering Dr. King.
4: That was a lie. That was the major lie. Now remember, I've been fighting racism since age four. So uh, I think I do know racism in a white person. I visited James Earl Ray, and I found ignorance in James Earl Ray and some illiteracy. And I found elements of a poor white man, but I found no racism.
5: Reverend Lawson, do you believe that James Earl Ray murdered your friend Martin Luther King?
4: James Earl Ray was a pawn for the official story. Dr. King was not assassinated by James Earl Ray.
0: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob.
3: As Reverend Lawson told us, he noticed some strange activity in the Memphis newspapers in the week leading up to King's murder. Stories attacking King for staying at white-owned hotels when there was a perfectly good black hotel, the Lorraine, that he could have patronized. What was this about, Lawson wondered. Where was this coming from? There were, of course, good reasons for King to stay at the white hotels. To integrate them, for one. And for another, Lawson says that King's all-black security detail liked hotels such as the Rivermont or the Admiral Benbow with interior access to rooms that they could secure and guard instead of motels like La Lorraine, whose rooms were accessed by an open exterior walkway. But whether because of the attacks in the newspapers or because he just chose to be there, King was booked into the Lorraine Motel for his final visit to Memphis. But at first, he was booked into room 202, which had a ground floor entry off an interior alcove. And at the last minute, King's room was changed to 306, which was reached by the exposed walkway. So the question is, why was King's room changed? The person best able to answer that question was Lorraine Bailey, the owner with her husband of the Lorraine Motel. According to an account from Bill Pepper's book, The Plot to Kill King, on April 2nd, the day before King arrived in Memphis, she told her husband that she had been visited by someone she described as an SCLC advance man who insisted that King be moved to a room overlooking the empty motel swimming pool. But as soon as she heard that Dr. King had been shot, Lorraine Bailey ran to her room screaming, what have I done? She then suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and never regained consciousness. She died a few days later and the question of who was behind the room changed remained a mystery. But this was not the only odd occurrence taking place near the murder site. Reverend Lawson mentioned a few others, like the transfer of the only two black firemen assigned to fire station number two, or the twos as it was called. The fire station overlooked the motel and a lot would be happening in and around that firehouse. And the two firemen, as the story goes, being black were thought to be a risk. But what excuse should be used to remove them? According to a witness we will hear later, it was decided that the easiest thing was to say that a threat had been made on their lives. Is that what happened? Well, the firemen can tell us in their own words as they respond to questions by attorney Bill Pepper, who represented Coretta Scott King and the King family at the 1999 civil trial in Memphis. First is Norville Wallace, who, in 37 years of service, attained the rank of captain, which is why Pepper refers to him as chief.
7: Wallace, you, um, you were employed by the Memphis Fire Department for a number of years, is that true? That's true, 37 years, six months. When, Chief Wallace, did you serve at the troops? I first went there in 1966. I left November of 68. Were you, at any time, transferred out of that station? Yeah, about 8 p.m. that night. Were you transferred out on 8 p.m. the night of the killing or the night before the killing? The night before. And how were you transferred? How did you receive your orders to be transferred out? Well, I received them from my captain. He said I was going to be detailed at 33, which is not at the airport. This was the night of April 3rd. Uh You were told by your captain to go out to the airport? Engine 33. Chief Wallace, did you ever ask what this was all about? Yes. And, and what were you told? Told that I had been threatened. And why would you be threatened? Because i putting put out fires, I guess. So <laughs> there was a threat on your life? I'd say. So they had to get you out of the area? I guess. That's what they got the here. How many black firemen were assigned to number two? Just two. You and... Lord news on the other ship. Lord Newsom. We're learning that neither one of you were allowed to be on duty on that day. Great. Right. And you never received a satisfactory explanation?
3: No, that did. Not to this day. So Norville Wallace is transferred out of fire station number two to a firehouse out of the airport. He is told that the transfer was caused by a threat upon his life. And Wallace cannot imagine why anyone would wish him harm. So take the explanation that Wallace was removed because of a threat to his life. Is this something real or something made up? Because one might think if a real threat had been made, details would be provided to the threatened person as a matter of responsible conduct. If you were Fireman Wallace, what might you want to know? How do they know about this threat? Where is it coming from? Who, more than the threatened party, deserves to know these details? But no details are given. No explanation is offered. In fact, the threat is never mentioned again. So does this sound like something real or something made up? And as Wallace testified, there was another black fireman at the twos, Floyd Newsom, And his story, as told from the same witness stand, is quite similar to that of Mr. Wallace.
7: Were you on duty, 4th of April, 1968, fire station number two at the time of the assassination. I was on duty, but I wasn't at the number two. You were not at the number two. No. I was supposed to be at the number two. You were supposed to be at the number two, but you weren't at the number two. Right. You tell the court and the jury why you were not at the number two.
6: I was not there because on April the 3rd, the night of April the 3rd, I call at home from my lieutenant at that time, it was Lieutenant Smith, who instructed me not to report uh, to the number twos on my regular duty to my regular company, but instead report to the number 31 that was on uh, Bolton-Crossing, and in the town.
7: What time of night did you receive this call? After 10. After 10 o'clock at night, you received a call and orders to go to another fire station. That's right. The next day. What was the emergency that caused you to be changed, you to be moved to another fire station? Sir, sure, there was no emergency. There was no emergency. No, yes, sir. And when you went to that other station the next day, did you find that you were
6: needed? No, sir, I was not needed. My leaving my company, left my company out of service unless somebody else was detailed to my company
7: in my state. So you're telling this court that you were surplus to requirements where you were sent, and that undermined your home your company? That's right. So did you ever inquire why you mm-hmm. were assigned away from your station? Yes, sir, I did. And what did you learn? Not
6: much. Um, time after time. time, after time. Um, I was transferred by the police department
7: of our request. So finally, you got an answer to your question. Yeah. And you were told that you were transferred at the request of the Memphis Police Department. Right. Have you formed any opinion mm-hmm. of your own about why you were transferred? Not really. I just know that it was very unusual
2: and unnecessary. So it had to be done for some reason. I don't
3: know the reason. And as if there weren't enough strange things going on at the twos that day, there was something else. Something that Reverend Lawson didn't know about, nor did anyone else, because no one in the murder investigation had interviewed Carthel Whedon, the chief of fire station number two, about what he saw that day. Years later, Whedon would come forward and say that the morning of the murder, he was approached by two men who flashed Army ID and asked to be placed on the roof of the firehouse where they could photograph the Lorraine Motel. This is Chief Whedon telling his account of what happened that morning. On uh, April
7: 4th, 1968, the day of the assassination, were you at- approached by uh, two Army officers?
6: That's what they indicated. They two our officers.
7: Did they
6: at the time to show you any military identification? Well, I'm sure they did, or I wouldn't have carried them up there. But I, you know, we had a lot of people coming in and out at that time, you know. And sure.
7: And what did they ask you to do?
6: They wanted to look out and dance for the Lorraine Hotel. They wanted, they wanted a vantage point
7: of the Lorraine Hotel, these army officers. And did you put them somewhere?
6: I put them on the roof for the. No, two fire station.
7: You put these Army officers on the roof of the number two fire station on 4th of April 1968.
6: In the morning time.
7: And were they carrying anything?
6: They had some briefcases.
7: Did you come to learn what was in those briefcases? No, sir. Did they tell you what was in the briefcases?
6: They said they wanted a vantage point or uh, doing some total...
7: Photographic photographic right right you came to believe that they had camera equipment in those two
6: things well that's what they indicated I placed them on a roof and they left did you see them leave? no sir
7: Mr. Wheaton has uh, any law enforcement officers ever asked you about about that day and what you did no sir nobody has ever spoken to you no sir
3: This is a simple story, but curious. Why would two men flashing Army ID ask to go to the roof of the firehouse so they could photograph the area around the Lorraine Motel on just what happened to be the day that Martin Luther King was shot? Who were these men? What were they doing that day? And if there were an innocent explanation, why haven't these men come forward? And where are the photographs that they presumably took?
1: Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: In the previous segment, we heard the accounts of the two black firemen who were removed from the critically located fire station number two and from the former chief of that station, who told of bringing two men up to the roof so they could photograph the area around the Lorraine Motel. This on a morning where he said a lot of people were coming and going. But something darker still appeared to be taking place within the Memphis Police Department. On his previous visits to Memphis in 1968, Martin Luther King was met and guarded by a special detail of black police officers. Reverend Lawson told us of how he was at the airport waiting for Dr. King the first time that unit made their appearance. He told us how their commander, Captain Jerry Williams, promised to keep King safe, but according to Lawson, on King's final visit to that troubled city, Williams strangely did not receive the order to form his unit. This is what Captain Williams had to say about it years later, responding to the questions of Attorney Bill Pepper.
7: What is your current occupation? Well, I'm involved currently in real estate. And have you previously been a member of the Memphis Police
6: Department? I sure have. How long were you a serving
7: officer? 31 years. And what were you doing in 1967,
6: 68? At that time, I was assigned to Homicide. And uh, I was be in charge of security for the Police Department and then we would have celebrities or some dignitaries come to Memphis.
7: Captain Williams, um, were you assigned to provide security
6: for Dr. Martin Luther King whenever he came to Memphis? Well, for the first two times that he came, to my knowledge, I was assigned, however, the very time I was not. Talking about the year of the assassination? The year of the assassination, uh, 1968.
7: And tell us how you would put together, how that security
6: unit that you had would be put together? Inspector Don Smith, the overall security supervisor. He would call me and ask me to select a group of officers. Possibly nine I would have, about six detectives, three of coming men. Would you stay with Dr. King throughout his visit when
7: he was in member?
6: Yes, sir. How would you provide security for him? Well, we would get his itinerary when he come to Memphis. We would meet him at the airport. When he did plenty, we would be right with him. We would uh, follow him to his hotel. If he would go to church first, we would leave the details of the church. Uh, where did he stay overnight when he left <clears throat> Memphis in the times when you were? On well, one occasion, he um, stayed at the um, Riverwalk. And your unit would protect them and provide security there? Yes, sir. We would go in and check the rooms, make sure the telephone wasn't bugged, check under the beds, check everywhere. Then I would assign two officers on the outside of this door. We would take turns about every two hours, and we would do that all night long.
7: Now, on Dr. King's last visit to Memphis, were you asked to perform this usual? Unit. No, sir. You were not? I was not. Why were you not
6: asked to perform that security unit on his last visit? No. Sir, I don't know. I, I was just told that somebody else would handle the assignment. Were they black officers? They were white officers. Did you ever
7: ask any questions as to why you weren't assigned? Well, I did later on after my retirement. But after the assassination, in the aftermath of the assassination, while you still were a serving officer, did you ever raise that question with any the inside
6: the department? No. You didn't at that time. We talked amongst ourselves, with we black officers and we had different versions as to why, but nobody knew why. You know, mm-hmm. you have to realize uh, at that time, I tell you when we used to go, papers were very segregated. There's a lot of hostility. The situation has changed dramatically since then. Uh, black people was only talking to black people, white people only talking to white people, so there a lot of hostility I don't know why we would pull up. I just don't know. I don't know if the answer that this inspector gave me was a true answer or not. I just know it wasn't working on that day in the And you were not in a position as a, an officer in the department as a black
7: officer <clears throat> really be able to ask anybody and require an answer for you. That's
3: but there was a black police detective who was working that day. His name was Ed Reddit, and with his black partner, Patrolman Willie Richmond, he met Dr. King at the airport on April 3rd as an auxiliary to the official security detail that included the white officers under Inspector Smith. The police, Smith and his men in one car and Reddit and Richmond in another, escorted King to the Lorraine Motel. Reddit and Richmond were not part of the official detail, so after they arrived, they went up to the firehouse, where from a back window they looked out at the Lorraine. They were not so much guarding King as putting him under surveillance, making notes as to who came and went. It's not clear where Smith's all-white details stationed themselves that day. Bill Pepper thinks they mostly hung out at the motel office reading newspapers, but we don't know that. What we do know is that Smith called headquarters at 5 p.m. asking for permission to end their watch. Despite numerous and credible threats to King's life, the officers were sent home without anyone replacing them. And the security detail did not return the next day, the day Dr. King was murdered. But Reddit did return to his post at the firehouse. On the morning of April 4th, Reddit said there was no sign of Smith or his detail. Sometime in the late morning, Willie Richmond rejoined Reddit, but it would be a rather strange afternoon. What follows is Detective Reddit on the witness stand, answering the questions of Bill Pepper.
7: How long did you serve as an officer with the Memphis Police Department? Ten and a half years. When did you become a police community relations officer? Uh, 1969. As a police community relations officer, what were your duties? Well, what. When we started there, there was nothing written about it, so we were to develop our own methods and ways of dealing with the community. And the idea was how do we get the community to be responsive and understand the police and working At the time of the sanitation workers' strike, were you still working with the community? Were you still involved with the community? How did you relate to the events that were going on then? Well, I was somewhat pulled out to kind of survey or serve. I called it was surveillance. Uh, I was given that kind of cops to do what I thought was a bit necessary, and I think the whole background idea was to uh, to observe or to find out anyone who may be coming into the city to disrupt it. That give you any problems in terms of your the relationship you had in the community because you've been working with the community and now you're moving into uh, more or less intelligence surveillance. Really, I didn't see the uh, any uh, Conflict. Everybody knew me and I knew everybody. Now, did there come a time when you were assigned to a, a specific detail uh, at the fire station, fire station number two? Well, it really wasn't assignment. it was one that I decided upon in uh, that uh, I had noticed something that was unusual about arriving at the rain with Dr. King. And I noticed there was nobody else there. In the past, uh, when we were assigned to Dr. King, we stayed with him, uh, guarded him up the steps, down the steps, and stayed with him. I saw nobody with him. So I went across the street, asked the fire department could we come in and observe from the rear, uh, which we did. And who accompanied you in that? Uh, William Richmond. So he took up position uh, in the fire station on the 3rd of April, and from the rear of the fire station, you were able to see Lorraine Motel, quite clear. And did you return with um, Officer Richmond the next day? The next day we returned.
3: The next day, as we learned from Station Chief Whedon, the firehouse was alive with people not normally there. By official count, there were 13 policemen inside the firehouse when King was murdered. 13. But Reddit was not one of them because at some time near 5 o'clock, Lieutenant Arkin showed up and told Reddit that the boss wanted to see him down at headquarters. What for? He wouldn't say. So Reddit went with Arkin, and Richmond was left still watching out the window. When Reddit arrived at headquarters, he was shown to a conference room and was stunned by what he saw. It was like a meeting of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he said. In this room were the heads and seconds of every law enforcement operation in the area. sheriff." Highway Patrol, Army Intelligence, National Guard, you name it, it was in the room. Then Reddit said that Chief Holloman approached and pointed to a man in civilian clothes who he said was with the Secret Service. Holloman said this man had flown in from Washington that day with news that a contract had been taken out on Reddit's life and that Reddit had to go home immediately. Reddit found the scene utterly surreal. Who takes out a contract on a lowly police detective? And who would fly from Washington with such news? And what would the Secret Service have to do with it? Returning to Reddit's testimony at the civil trial.
6: There were a group of uh, men,
7: and I was assume the middle of the law enforcement. Uh, once we arrived, we got inside, and Dr. Holland paid but, uh, There was a man there who had just flown in, and there was a contract on my life. And then I would go home. I uh, told him that it was best for me to go back to where I was and take care of the family. What well, the director hall
6: had the, three bar argumentations about uh, you going home anyway. It's my job to protect you, so Lieutenant Arm can
3: take him home. Reddit said he was kept at home for the next week. Then he was told he could return to work. The whole thing was said to be a mix-up. The threat was actually on some other black police detective in Knoxville. So Detective Reddit, though apparently not the object of a real contract. Was the third black man removed from the fire station in two days and the second man removed because of reported threat upon his life. A dangerous time to be working at the twos. So a lot of strange stuff going on and if you lived in Memphis when King was killed and were paying attention like Reverend Lawson, you may have been aware of these odd stories. But most people in America were not and in part this was because James L. Ray never had a trial though according to Ray and many others, he wanted a trial and always insisted that he did not shoot Martin Luther King. You heard the voices of the men in these stories because we jumped ahead 30 years to the civil trial, a lawsuit for wrongful death brought in Memphis in 1999 by Coretta Scott King. She no longer believed the official version of her husband's murder, and she wanted the evidence of that crime, as incomplete as it was, to be recorded in a court of law. So the people coming later could read what the witnesses had to say, or in our case, hear what they had to say. But we really haven't gone anywhere. We're still in Memphis in 1968, looking at some of the strange things that went down the day King was killed. We've got 50 years of revelations still in front of us. And that's how this story will continue to emerge, piece by piece, year by year, as we hear people overcome their fear or surrender to their conscience. So what you've just heard is for openers, for background. And as ominous as it all sounds, it's possible that there are reasonable explanations for some or all of these events. And none of these stories by themselves, or even collectively, proves that there was conspiracy to murder Dr. King. But if these events were table-setting for a murder, then the finger of guilt would point back to those with the power to make these strange things happen. But one thing we do know is that these events could not have been the doing of James Earl Ray, who drifted into Memphis for the very first time just a few hours before Dr. King was shot. What is his story? Who or what brought him to Memphis? And where was he when Dr. King was killed? Well, James Earl Ray will tell you himself. But be warned, it's no simple tale.
2: next time on the MLK Tapes.
5: We received a letter. Dear Mr. Haynes, I'm here in jail. I've been accused of a murder. I don't know anything about it. Will you please come help me?
2: No, he never did have no uh, hostility towards any race. Not only blacks, but Hispanics or anybody.
6: And we spent the night together. had breakfast together, and he was talking to me that He was all happy on Elliot's. He had plenty of money on them. So uh, he said, I'm going to go down to Birmingham and buy it late model car.
1: He said, you can have this. He said, oh, I'm working out. Hey, Mr. Raul. Well, I can't exactly remember how the Raul came in. i worked for a guy
0: named Raul or something like that. Mr. Bolton came over the radio was saying that uh, uh, Reverend Martin Luther King went shot, so uh, I didn't pay too much attention to that, but I kept
6: on driving. And
0: it wasn't too long after that. They said uh, uh, they were looking for a white man and a white Mustang in connection with the shooting.
5: My dad, James Earl Ray, and I were sitting on the floor of that shower stall. And the first thing out of anybody's mouth was my dad looking at this client of ours and saying, who are you?
2: Thanks for listening to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. This podcast is not specifically endorsed by the King family or the King estate. The MLK Tapes is written and hosted by Bill Klaper Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Ben Kebrick. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, with producers Jamie Albright and Meredith Stedman. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover art by Mr. Soul 216 with photography by Artemis Jenkins. Special thanks to Owen Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, The Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Envision Business Management, and Station 16. If you have questions, you can visit our website, themlktapes.com. We posted photos and videos related to the podcast on our social media accounts. You can check them out at themlktapes. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.